welcome to Doing the Work, the frontline stories of social change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. In this episode, I talk with Miriam Bernardo, who is a therapist at Community Connections for Life in Miami, Florida. We discuss Miriam's community-based clinical work with a diverse population of clients who experience a range of mental health issues, as well as community violence. Miriam shares her approach of learning from her clients, as well as evidence-based interventions. She talks about why she loves social work and provides a refreshing perspective. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Miriam. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Really excited to have you. And just to start out, could you let the listeners know what you currently do? Yes. So um, what I currently do, I'm actually a therapist or a clinical social worker at a community mental health center called Community Connections for Life. So my role there is to provide individual counseling to children and adults. And I also do, um, I facilitate psychosocial rehabilitation groups. I also provide the services in the field. So there are times where I have clients that I see in the community. What are the particular challenges for this population that comes to the clinic or that you're going out to see in the community? So with the adults that I work with, they are, they suffer with severe mental health issues. So I would say that um, maybe 80% of them are diagnosed with schizophrenia, um, while others are bipolar, and it's very severe. So it's really affected their day-to-day life. Um, So I would say some of the biggest challenges are kind of trying to overcome a lot of the stigma that's still related to mental health, um, while also trying to link them to services, because unfortunately, a lot of them they don't have IDs, they don't have um, social security cards, they have unstable housing, unstable employment. Some of them uh, don't even have like, um, they're not able to read or write. So all of these things make it even more challenging to get certain services to keep them stable. And again, uh, at least the clients that I work with have a very limited income because they do depend on things like social security. So it's like once they pay their rent, they're, they probably have about $100 that they have to survive off every single month. So it's like this continuous cycle where they want to get better. They want to eventually become independent. But with like all these barriers, it's hard to kind of to break that. And how do you, when you're working with them, you know, what's, what's your approach? A lot of education and a lot of just reinforcing certain behaviors um, because unfortunately for a lot of them they didn't have the healthiest environments growing up where it wasn't like you had someone that would say okay I understand that you're experiencing these challenges so let me find a way to accommodate you as a for me personally it's I try to just focus on their strengths really and just finding a way to use that to kind of guide how I'm going to um, either teach them about their own mental health, teach them how to do day-to-day things. Because even for some of them, it's like helping them understand, okay, um, you have to shower every day, not because uh, they need to look nice, but for their health, things like that, because they don't have someone or that might've taught them, hey, these are 
you know, essential things that you need for your daily life. And just having kind of being an open, open ear and really listening to them because uh, with my clients, I feel like a lot of the time they have like a lot of shame with certain things or because of their mental health, they're kind of shunned. So they don't really get, they didn't really get the chance to express themselves. Just being an active listener and kind of being where they're at. So not setting expectations really high and providing them all with the same like curriculum or the same topic. I always try to adjust it for each individual person. Do they talk with you about the stigma around mental health? Uh, Some of them do. Uh, Some of them I don't, they have their own resistance where they, they're not even at the point where they can identify with it. So they might have a diagnosis, but they won't really say, oh, I, I'm diagnosed with this and I deal with these symptoms. But for others, they can see it. And it, you have to, at least I have to work with them to kind of let them know that though there is a stigma, that doesn't mean that there's nothing wrong with them. They, it's not something that's odd or weird there's millions of people that suffer with mental health issues and it's just allowing them to understand that and know that even though some people might not accept them or have an understanding of it, they do at least where we are and at our center, they, they have the chance to kind of be accepted and talk about it. Another barrier that affects the, the population that I work with is a lot of community violence So uh, whether it's like shootings in the community and just seeing how it affects people of all ages. So you'll have small children that are affected by gun violence while you also have at the other end of the spectrum older adults. And just realizing that that's something that does have to be discussed. Safety, uh, uh, the effects of gun violence, the dangers of guns. And kind of, even though it's a topic that I think oftentimes isn't talked about with children, unfortunately, I guess because of the communities they're in, it is something that has to be covered in order to, I guess, prepare for the unexpected to make sure that they're prepared. I guess that's the best way. When you say prepared, you mean safety planning type preparedness? Yeah. And what... You and know, also, uh-huh. oh, no, go I, ahead. Um, educating them, educating people, so it's not something that's normalized. So, um, I don't know if that makes sense, because um, I think oftentimes when you kind of hear about um, either violent acts and stuff like that all the time, it almost seems like something's normal. Um, but it's really working towards well, you know, it, it's not. You know, a child shouldn't have to grow through something like that. So it's um it's kind of educating them on that while also if it's someone that's gone through it, helping them process like feelings related to it. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And when you share with them like this shouldn't be something that a child has to experience, for example, or you're doing education around that, how's the response to that? From from the from that from the client's perspective, like what? How do they respond when you say those things? Hmm. So it's definitely um, it varies. For some, they're kind of like, "Oh, I'm I'm used to it. I'm used to it." 
while with others, they're, I guess they, they have a different way of looking at it. Like they're more open to recognizing like, oh yeah, this, this shouldn't be happening. Or, um, I wish things would get better. So it goes, it goes either way. So for some, it is something where it's it's so common that they're kind of used to it. Uh, while others can recognize that there are certain changes that should be done to prevent violence within communities. For the clients who say, you know, this shouldn't be happening and they want to maybe, they wish they could do something about it, you know, is there a connection that ever gets made to groups that are doing work around that? Usually it'll be through community events or just on their own, like educating their peers. But you help you help them with that, or they're already they're already engaged in those activities. Um, some are, and there's others where um, they can be linked to certain events uh, related to to the topics they're interested. Yeah, do they do they share with you just what it's like to live under the daily threat of gun violence and community violence? The stress that you know, the toll that that takes? Um, so I, I could literally probably last week, um, I was working with a child um, and she was actually very vocal and honest about her experience. And she's kind of talked about um, growing up in a specific neighborhood where she, she openly said like, oh, you know, there were several times where I, I had to duck because there were shootings in the area and kind of how certain sounds autom- were like an automatic um, trigger f- for them to, okay, we need to, we need to hide or we need to make sure that we're in the house um, so that we don't get hurt. Yeah. So there's definitely been some that are open and honest about how it's, how it's affected them. Did you feel prepared for working with around those issues? Personally, I did. I think it was very helpful that um, I did have, I, I feel very fortunate that the internships I had through, through school kind of already gave me some insight on some of these issues, because if not, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I would have been ready for the position I'm in just because a lot of the cases I do get are very severe and honestly, Things happen every every single day for me personally is different. So I think that definitely uh, helped because, again, every single day is different. I mean, I've had literally last week I got to work and probably within 30 minutes I was calling 911 because somebody had a seizure. So it's definitely um, having that that back the background or that opportunity to learn in like an internship setting was definitely helpful. It's like for me, uh, the learning doesn't stop. So I do my best. So at work, I do have trainings. But aside from that, on my own, if I see a training within the community, or an event on a certain subject matter, I put in like the effort or put in my part to go ahead and do it. Because there's definitely always something new to learn. There's, There's always room for growth, more things to learn about. So I kind of, I try to take the initiative on that. Or even if I encounter a case where maybe they mention something I don't know much about, 
I kind of do my part to make sure, okay, let me make sure that I'm, I'm educated on this. I, I know something about it. So I get the perspective from the client themselves about the subject matter and then kind of like the, the evidence-based material on the subject. That's great. So you're, you're just like, as you learn about these things, you're like, boom, I'm just going to look that up. I'm going to find what the research says about it. But I also got the client's perspective on it. And then you kind of learn how to approach it from there. Definitely. Because again, since every, every, you'll ha- you might have a bunch of clients that might be dealing with quote unquote, the same thing, but it's always different with each one. They might all be de- dealing with a certain issue, but it's always different with everybody. There might be some similarities, but again, every single client is unique in their own. So. You know, there's a lot of information about marginalized populations, um, especially people of color not seeking out mental health services and a lot of barriers to access. And also because of the stigma and because of some cultural barriers, often on the part of providers, clinics, clinicians, cultural incompetence, lack of effective cross-cultural work. Could you talk about how the work you're doing really bridges that since you are working with a very diverse and marginalized population? Yeah, so I I think it's great having a center where everybody can come in depending on their background and be with individuals that are kind of trained to work with different populations, uh, work working with people with severe mental health issues, um, and specifically working with marginalized groups. It's kind of knowing how to accommodate each person because, again, uh, at least with my experience, I've had clients where, depending on their cultural background, because of their mental health issues, they were seen as either they were possessed or uh, there was something wrong with them. So it's kind of adjusting to their view or how they see it as well. And how do you how do you do that when you're with them? How do you adjust to their view? Because you know this stuff is discussed in you know a little bit in class, maybe in some classes. But when you're there with the person and they're actually telling you you know, about being possessed or whatever, you know, it can, especially when someone's starting out, right? Because you're start you're starting out recently with your MSW and you're, you've made that transition to being a full-time therapist now, you know, it can kind of throw someone off at maybe in the beginning, because you might want to just like follow what you learned, you know, this, the yeah. intervention goes A, B, C, you know, but. I, th- I think if there's anything I've learned actually being with the clients is learning how to be flexible and just working where they, wherever they are not have again not setting specific expectations uh depending on the intervention i kind of just i allow the person to be very open um and vocal about their experience and then um making sure I keep any biases aside, always keeping an open mind um, and making sure that from my end, just reminding them or allowing them to know that they're in a safe space, that there's no, there's no judgment, uh, there's no right or what wrong answers, quote unquote. Um, 
Yeah. And what's the primary, I mean, like, what are the, what are kind of like the demographics of, of the client population? Uh, the majority are uh, people of color. So the major, I would say more than half are African-American and then a few are Hispanic. And then there's a couple that are Caucasian. And do you see, I mean, do the clients who come in typically keep returning for services? Yes. I would say about half consistently uh, show up and they've been coming to our program for months while there's a few where, again, due to either their health and stability, uh, they're unable to get their medication, they... They, they won't show up for months and then they'll come back all of a sudden when they need help. Um, so there's some that do where it's difficult to be consistent while there's others um, that do consistently come every single day and they come for months. Do you think your, um, your own background and your own, uh, you know, being a woman of color, being bilingual, do you think that helps you? connect with the with the population definitely i think it definitely does because there's certain it's like right off the bat there's certain similarities or things that we have in common that kind of at least for me i've noticed it kind of it even helps with the rapport because again there's similarities there's similar struggles even if they're from different countries there's still things that affect us all as, as a whole as a community so it it really helps because there's there's from the beginning there's already a kind of like an understanding of that. And how much do you share with them? Like how much do you self-disclose in terms of like your own experiences along those lines, along those similarities? For me personally, I try not to share that much, especially with the clients I have, they are very curious. And because I see them every single day, they, it's almost like they feel very comfortable and they want to know. So they'll say, oh, you know, how, what did you do on the weekend? Or, oh, are you married? Do you have any kids? Because they, they see me every day. But in order for me to kind of keep it as like a therapeutic relationship, I try not to reveal that much. I can talk about maybe microaggressions that I've experienced, things like that, where it's kind of like a general um, comment or something general I can disclose, but I try not to really say anything personal. And when you do share those things, like about that, that's what I was kind of wondering. So sometimes when people are doing, you know, work within their same cultural background, even though that in and of itself can be so many different things. But a client might come in and they say, oh, this you look like me or you look, I know you're, you know, um, from a similar cultural background, but there could be a lot of assumptions that come along with that, that it means you've had the same experiences where maybe like you haven't, right? So is there like a lot of assuming that you think happens or, or not so much? I would say yes, there is. For that, for that same reason, I think, and uh, and I it from it works both ways. So at least when I'm working with the children, well, the children and teens, I think it's helpful because they can see like, okay, this person looks like me, 
and they've gone through, they've possibly gone through similar things and they can see that they can do something with themselves, that it, it's still possible that just because they, they look a certain way or they had a certain experience that, um, or because society has told them, hey, you, you can't do this, um, that it's not the case, that they can achieve what they want to do and more. So I think in that sense, it's very helpful as well to kind of see someone that, that looks the way they do or has possibly had a similar background. Yeah, yeah. I just, I know that sometimes there's, <laughs> I think sometimes there's this um, assumption from clients and practitioners and clinicians that you've got to match up, you know, cultural backgrounds to do more effective services. And there's definitely some research that's shown that can help. There's other research that's shown that you can have the same outcomes as long as the clinician is, is you know, progressing in a culturally competent manner and, do, you know, and bridging that gap. So I kind of just wanted to get your take on that. I think there can be some challenges, but the key thing that you're doing is you're just so open to whatever they're coming to you with that you're, you're really meeting them where they're at and you're letting them kind of teach you about their own lives, right? I, I like to ask guests on the podcast how they got into social work themselves. You know, is there like, what drew you into social work? So I originally did not plan on pursuing social work. I actually started as a pre-med student. And then I just, I realized I, I had started um, like the main coursework and I just realized that it wasn't, I always knew I wanted to be in a profession where I was helping people, but I realized that it wasn't in that way. And why did you, like, what led you to wanting to help people? Like, where did that come from? To be honest, I think it's from my parents, just because I've seen how they have always helped other people, even me. I mean, they've gone through a lot of struggle, but even through it all, they always ended up helping others in any way they could, even if they really didn't have that many resources. So I just, I don't, I don't know. I always knew I wanted to do something where I was helping other people. And so I, I had kind of done some research, just what, what I was like, what can I do? And I had even, I had a conversation with my, my mom uh, and she had brought it up. She's like, what if you consider this? And I, I didn't, I didn't really know much about it, to be honest. And I saw an advisor and I kind of kept doing research and reading on it. And I just, it, I just saw myself in it immediately. I was like, this, this is very me. Like I, I, it's always kind of matched with the kind of person that, that I am. And it just, everything fell into place. And then I think one of the rewarding things about it is that in the end, it's, I, I'm in a profession where I'm helping others and at the same time going through uh, my like my education and just becoming a social worker that was very healing for me too because I had like the opportunity to really reflect on my own experiences so that was that was really healing for me too so it's like it was a win-win That's great that's really cool going back to the challenges you know with this with your with the clients that you're working with and all these barriers for them and also thinking about um some of the work, previous work you've done like right some like advocacy type work how do you engage in social change right so you know social work we have this we're root you know we have these values of social justice and sometimes 
doing therapy there we social justice can be kind of like brought into it but sometimes it feels hard to especially if you've done like advocacy work before so how do you how do you uh kind of bridge that in your work for me it's still kind of it's still through doing outreach um i think that's a big thing and then even talking to other people within the same field and other fields where kind of having a conversation about it and what needs to be done uh, in order to, I guess, improve the resources of those different populations. And then individually, it's really being there for each client. So there's been times where um, they'll be on, even if it's on the phone with like social services or something like that, but the person on the other end on that of the phone call kind of doesn't have like the big picture of what this person has gone through or how they are and just being there with them on that phone call and advocating for them is makes all the difference because you it's like you're bridging that gap where okay if I'm if I if I wasn't there to really assist them with that they might not have gotten what they needed in the end and just continuing to be involved with other social workers even if they're not working with the same populations and being involved in NASW, which I continue to do being an active member, all of that contributes to, to help with advocating. Are you involved with any other like NASW type uh, work in the community that, you know, any projects that you're working on outside of the therapist role that you're doing at your job? Yes. I'm a, I'm a committee member for NASW for the Miami day chair. So we still try to do events throughout the year to, again, not only bring social workers together, but to still advocate for every, for all the changes that still need to be done and still going to supporting events for other organizations. So like going to NAMI events or just uh, other events where it's an opportunity to really talk to the community about certain populations or resources or bills that should be passed in order to help people on a bigger scale. So that's a big one. That's excellent. You know, I mean, it can be, I mean, you know, you're out there doing the work and it can be incredibly challenging when you're juggling your work schedule and all your other responsibilities to then engage in all this other work. So, you know, why do you do that? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's maybe a silly question, but a lot of people don't. I, I, I wouldn't have any other way to be honest. Um, I think sometimes I've, I've gotten comments from uh, like peers where I'm, we're just spending time together and they're just, they, I get the comment like, Oh, I feel like you're always on social work mode, but I just, it, it's how I am. Uh, It's more than a profession to me. So it's like something I'm constantly working on or talking about. Um, so I don't see it as, um, I guess, just a job or it, it goes beyond that for me. And and how do you plan on, you know, making sure you don't burn out since you are, you know, you're fired up, you're, you're, you know, you graduated not that long ago, you're doing this great, you know, you've got this great position, you're helping these people, you're engaged with NASW, you know, so, full on social work mode all the time. Yeah. <laughs> how are you going to not burn out? For me, it's definitely been time management, number one, learning how to say no, because I definitely, I I can say that I was the kind of person where I was just like, no, 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 I can do it. I can do it. I can do that. I can do it all. 
when really you we we can't as much as we would we want to kind of help absolutely every single person we meet it's important to kind of recognize your your limit not only for yourself but for the client because i i wouldn't want to um i don't know have a, a really really huge caseload and then realize that, that okay i'm not i'm not really providing this client with with all of the help i can provide them with or attention so it's it's knowing when when to say no and then being consistent with my self-care so at least for me fridays after five o'clock i always make sure to do something something that has nothing to do with work um with friends but just making sure that i'm consistent with it and even um like i used to there's times where I provide clients with like my Google voice and there were times where I would answer and it w- I wasn't even at work and I would answer and I've kind of learned to not do that anymore. Not because I don't uh, want to answer their phone calls or not talk to them, but just for me to make sure to have some time where I'm not always on work because again, that just kind of adds stress and it adds to kind of to becoming burnt out. So it's, it's little things like that that can make all the difference. Yeah, that sounds good. You know, I mean, most, the th- right, because if you're always taking their calls, then at some point you're going to get burned out and you're not going to be taking any calls. So, exactly. you know, Miriam, what gives you hope? Knowing, I guess just knowing that I'm doing what I can to make a positive inca- impact, even though there's times where we do our best to help people and maybe we don't, we don't get anything in return recognition or anything. It's just knowing that I've done my part and put in the effort to do what I can to help someone out. However that may be. And seeing the positive changes um, and knowing that what I do, whether it's something small or something huge really does make all the difference. So just before we kind of wrap up, is there anything, you know, you want the listeners to to know or just kind of any thoughts that you want to get out there? Definitely not to give up, even though we may encounter a lot of barriers and challenges to keep going. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast and thanks for doing the work out in the community. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place.